Hello, I'm Isabel van Damme and welcome to another conversation in the EU Law Live podcast series. I am a partner at Van Balen Bellis with a practice focusing on EU law and international trade law and also a member of the editorial board of EU Law Live. In this episode, we will talk about women in the EU legal profession, how the role of women in the legal field has changed over the years and how to challenge gender bias and inequality. Joining me for this conversation are three outstanding EU lawyers. Sasha Prechal is a judge at the Court of Justice of the European Union. She has been a judge since 2010 and currently serves also as the president of the third chamber of the court. She is one of the six female judges at the court. Sasha is also an honorary professor at Utrecht University. Chiara Zilioli is the general counsel of the European Central Bank and the founding member of the bank's Women in Leadership Network. She is also an honorary professor at the Johann Wolfgang Goethe University. Finally, Grania de Burka is a Florence Ellenwood Allen Professor of Law at NYU and also the director of the Jean Monnet Center for International and Regional Economic Law and Justice at that university. Grania has recently written about gender and academic careers with particular emphasis on academic publishing. Sasha, Chiara, Grania, thank you very much for joining us at EU Law Live. I would like to start uh, by asking you about the importance of having mentors and role models in the development of women's careers. And it's generally understood that regardless of gender, everyone can benefit from having good mentors and inspiring role models. So, Sasha, in the development of your career, what was the role of mentors and role models? I think for part I have to disappoint you. Because in law, I had no female mentors or models, but there were two women which have been very important uh, in my life, which was my grandmother, wonderful, a very autonomous and a bit rebellious person, and my mother, because she had had her whole life a professional career. Now you might say what's so special about it. Well, we came in 1968 from Czechoslovakia in Netherlands. And in Czechoslovakia, it was normal that women were working. And when we came to the Netherlands, it was a shock. Because at that time, most of the women, certainly those with children, uh, just stayed at home. And when I compared it to my mom, then I really decided at a rather early age, this is not what I want to do. Staying at home with children, without children, but staying at home. So that's the female role models in a way. Um, In law, I think the most important person for me was as a mentor, there were a few, but the most important was Judge Koopmans. I worked for him in the late 80s in Luxembourg, a very remarkable person man of great intellectual, cultural curiosity, a very sharp lawyer, sometimes a bit unpredictable. Um, He was a person with great sense for social justice, an interest in legal principles, in particular in the constitutional protection of uh, equality in comparative law, in EU law, and he was a demanding boss, but I have learned a lot And I've appreciated him enormously, both as a lawyer and as a person. This is what I can tell you about my 
mentors and role models. Chiara, did you have a similar experience that your mentors were primarily male uh, or did you have uh, female mentors? And did you consider that to be important, whether or not you had female mentors? I think I need to make a step back because uh, role models you start having as a child. When I was a child, there were no female heroes. So my heroes were Robin Hood, Tom Sawyer, Robinson Crusoe. So there were no girls who could just go and have an adventure. The girls were doing things that I did not particularly, I did not find particularly exciting. But at the same time, when you grow up, then role model is um, has two facets. Yeah. So, uh, what is the difference between a male and a woman? Again, I I have to say I had mainly men, but probably this is because of the shortage of women in the environment where I was uh, where I was uh, Im- immersed. Now I realize, and I'm often told that I am a role model for my colleagues. But that happens, I think, to women very often when you can say, I have managed to combine uh, a career with a good family life. And that is something that women often struggle. And then you become a role model for that. Apart from this, I think there is no big difference between a male or a female role model and mentor. Uh, when you have a mentor, I think there is a little bit of a different characteristic. A woman can tell you things with which you identify more and you can understand better some things. But a man can tell you how others perceive you and adds to your experience. So all in all, I think uh, you have to value both male and female. In my experience, it was mostly male, but I su- suppose it is because of the situation of the shortage of women in that position, type of positions. And Grainje, is that also your experience? And are you seeing already a shift whereby there are more female mentors? Yes, so we're a disappointing trio, really, aren't we? Um, I think my story is very similar. Um, I had no mentors, uh, male or female. Um, I I went to a, a law school. It was a big law school. We had all male professors, I think, lecturers, professors. I think there was one female tutor, I remember. I'm not sure I even noticed it at the time. Uh, They're just, as Chiara says, we grew up in an era, you know, we were just emerging from uh, the 50s and 60s and so on. And women were not yet prominent in public life or in careers and so on. So um, we were the generation, I suppose, that we're lucky enough to be able to forge careers and public lives for ourselves. But certainly there wasn't much of it around. Um, So no mentors and um, role models. You know, I didn't consciously have role models, I think, but obviously we all have implicit uh, people we admire, people we see and so on. Um, what I will say is, is similar to Sasha, without being aware of it, I was raised by my mother. My father died when I was young and she did everything and she didn't talk about it and she abhorred the term feminism. <laughs> so I, I, you know, just got used to the fact that she did the household work, looked after us, worked, earned the money everything. Um, and she expected that we would do the same. So maybe that was something. Um, but when I, my first academic job was at Oxford, uh, university, I was very young and it was very, very different environment for me. I had never been to England before, even though I lived in Ireland. And so this was a very strange move. Um, and I ended up, I got a job at a college because it was advertised. Um, but it turned out to be an all female college at the time. And I thought this was really 
strange and interesting. You know, why would there be? Of course, my naivety, I began to understand why there was a women's college, what it meant to have a women's college in a university which didn't admit women to any of its colleges um, until well into the 20th century. Um, and, you know, this was an incredibly impressive institution. I started to see women around me um, who were the, the treasurer, the president, the bursar, everything. There was a woman to do everything, however traditionally male that role would have seemed to me at the time. Um, so that was really interesting. None of them self-consciously saw themselves as role models or anything. It was there, Again, it was very much just an expectation. Everyone can do everything. And the second thing I think that was really uh, interesting and maybe much more self-conscious was there was a really great group of women in the law faculty then. So I was in a college there's only one other lawyer in each college. So it was women doing everything else, history, economics, and so on. But across the law faculty, there was a group of really great women. I was really lucky to be there at that time. You know, Nikki Lacey, Sandy Fredman, Jane Stapleton, um, other, I'm sure I'm forgetting people. And uh, they were really supportive. And we used to meet. And my recollection is we had fun. We drank wine and complained about students and things. But actually, it was a great support network and it was an intellectual network and then I think I can say I became much more conscious of the how impressive it was to see strong intellectual women confident articulate leader leaders in their fields and so on um, and I think you know I, I would have I don't think it was mentorship but it was certainly you know influenced by of people um, by people I admired um, yeah that's a long answer to your question <laughs> Chiara, you already mentioned a little bit the narratives around uh, women kind of in leadership positions, in moving forward in their careers, and also the issue of different perceptions that men and women can have uh, about career progression. And in that respect, it does sometimes see that when women's career achievements are marked or celebrated, that there's often still a narrative being used regarding um or let's say that includes an emphasis on a woman's personal circumstances. So it's about the promotion of uh, a woman of having four children uh, to a particular position. Uh, there's a focus on the fact uh, that maybe someone is a grandmother and is being promoted to, let's say, the director general position of the WTO. And so these narratives are often still used to mark women's career progressions Whereas these narratives do not seem to be always used um, in respect of men's career progressions. And Chiara, I wonder, do you see those narratives as enabling or restricting women? Or do you consider it doesn't really matter? It's a complex question because it depends how you see it, of course, and uh, at which point in your career you are. Because uh, what you just mentioned, a grandmother promoted, etc. I think this is enabling, not enabling her, but enabling others. It is nice for young people, young mothers who struggle with career and small children to see, look, there are others who made it. It is possible. Despite all those who tell me you have to choose, it's neither either or. It's nice. So it's enabling. However, when you are younger, and this is used to say, well, you know, this person has been promoted, mother of three, uh, it could be said in a way that is a little bit diminishing. It could be said as men mentioning, well, because we need that example. We need diversity. We need also that type of sample woman, yeah, woman mother. Um, so it depends very much how it is done. I 
personally think it is normally used in a good way. And uh, um, it, it, it is empowering to take the person as a whole. The person is not only the career, if there is more, I think it is not bad. What I always tell my younger colleagues, especially with small children, is remember, however, that when you pick up the child from school, you are the mom or the mom has constraints, cannot stay at work long. If it is a father doing it, it's a very good father taking care of the children. So don't make too much publicity. Just do it. If you need, you do it and you go ahead. And in the end, when you are a little bit more advanced in career, it will be empowering. But there is a phase in career where I have been for myself simply because it didn't matter for the others. That was my life. Now I think it could empower others if they mention it. It's a bit of a different perspective, but whether, especially in the past, it was not very important. It was important, I think, to stress the, the double role of, of, of women just in order to show that they are able, despite of the family and everything, to uh, have a good career, to be to be very good, excellent workers and so forth. But now, at least one would hope, when the life-work balance issue is an issue for both men and women, at least I suppose that also those roles have changes. I, I would not really be much in favor to stress all the time, yeah, she's also a mom with three children, uh, because why not to say the same about a man? And, and at the end of the day, is it relevant? I don't know. I, I have a bit ambiguous feeling about, about these issues. I agree with you, but I think the way forward is to also encourage men to mention that because it is the complete personality. So the fact that there's no mention for men is bad. Yeah, so just to jump in, um, I wish it weren't relevant and I wish things were the same for men and women, but they're so not even still. You know, I feel like uh, women still, for lots of reasons, bear the brunt of the homework. Not, Not entirely, and there are men increasingly who are you know, trying to take a step in that direction. Just to mention something, and this may seem initially unfairly critical, and I don't mean it as such, but it's just to reflect back on Chiara's point that context is everything. Who says it? When you say it? When you put your career and motherhood out front um, and when you don't? So I've noticed in recent years, sometimes auto replies, I've only ever seen this from male colleagues, auto replies saying, I am looking after, you know, they make a point of mentioning the child care in the in the auto reply. And I have a mixed response to it. One response is good, you know, great. This shows first they're taking it seriously, they're putting it out there. The other is a bit of frustration. And I think we could never have done that. And no young woman would do this. Why not? Because they're afraid of being judged as oh the the, you know. The assumptions that will go with that, oh, she'll be torn between home and work or women and then her identity as a woman, all these children being brought into the professional workplace. So women don't dare on the whole. Maybe some starting to do it. Women don't do it. Men feel proud to do it and they can do it. And on the one hand, I think that's good. On the other hand, I think, hmm, you know, I remember feeling that a few years ago, a colleague at a law school, a very prominent law school over here, had a baby a male colleague, and he brought the baby in 
uh, at a faculty meeting. And, you know, all of the female colleagues, we, we, we went through the same experience of it's good that he did it and showed we're all parents. And sometimes we end up the babysitter's sick and we have to, but no woman would ever dare do that. You know, you have the confidence, the you can come in with your baby saying, I'm me and I have fatherhood responsibilities. And we could not do that because we would be judged. We would be intervening in the workplace inappropriately, etc. So, you know, there are double standards. Maybe there, it's inevitable there will be for a while. You know, I would like to think we could all put the same, bring our babies. Well, actually, that's a good debate to be had. Should we bring our babies to work? Um, you know, maybe at times, yes, at times, no. And also, should we all put out there, out front, our caring responsibilities in our email replies and so on? Um, I think the world is still a very unequal one and trying to have the same rules for everyone when it's a very unequal world doesn't quite work. Yeah, I think, um, Grania, you, you've already kind of indicated the circumstances are still unequal. But I've also sensed and in your responses, and there's a flash on Chiara, that you've also referred to change already a few times. So what would you consider, what are the main changes that you've already seen in the role of women in the legal profession? And maybe you want to talk specifically uh, in your situation, you know, in academia. Yeah, I mean, I obviously have been based in the US for um, some time now, so it's easier for me to talk about the situation here. I, I talk to my colleagues in Europe about it, but I'm I'm less sure. But it varies very much from, from country to country. You know, I think my colleagues in Germany find it really hard still, the male legal academic profession. Sorry, I said that was a Freudian slip. The legal academic profession is very male still in Germany, very male-dominated. Um, it's better in the UK. And in the UK, they have had these uh, quotas, soft quotas, targets and so on. And we, I know that was something you wanted to ask about maybe later, but that seems to have yielded results in terms of percentages of women on faculties and so on in the UK. So I think it varies from country to country with the legal academic culture, the political and public culture more generally, with the measures being taken by universities, with whether there's sort of any kind of steer from the government on that. In the US, where there's no governmental steer, very much, you know, a market over here, um, there's still huge steps being taken. I, I think that. I, I notice a lot of effort being made. And it's still an uphill battle. There's always the difference between the junior ranks, the PhD ranks, the first entry level ranks, and then the senior people and the leadership. And that's partly affected by, you know, family burdens and so on, the unequal distribution of labor in the family. But at the same time, I do see change. Um, I have some great colleagues. It's very vocal now, the emphasis on gender and its importance. And I think more and more, I notice a lot of law schools seeking uh, female candidates to be dean and so on. They're looking to change that. So I, th I think change is afoot. And this younger generation coming up, it gives me a lot of hope. Yara, do you see the same development uh, at the European Central Bank and just generally in the public sector? There has been a change. It is not enormous. So in the public sector, when I joined, um, so in, in the way women are treated, I think the change is not enormous because there was no bad treatment, so to say. And the uh, some of the biases are not completely gone yet. The change is in the numbers and the numbers do a lot because um, 
being more, being able to talk to each other has also increased the awareness. And for example, the network that uh, you have mentioned we have at DCB has had as one of its main uh, objective really to support women in becoming more aware of all these things and being more vocal, more present um, without, you know, being conflicting. Uh, but uh, this is a little bit the change, that there is more more awareness and more courage to raise the issue. If there is something that is not fine, it is mentioned, and it was not the case before. Uh, and, and this comes, in my view, really from the numbers. The numbers are not yet ideal, and um, uh, at DCB, uh, the board has decided to include targets, and targets are difficult to reach, but uh, clearly without targets, nothing happens. And with target, people strive to at least get there or try to get there. Sasha, what is your uh, experience, given that at the court also there are not that many female judges yet? No, not female judges, uh, but I must say, and now I can compare it when I was here in the 80s and the situation now, uh, there are definitely changes uh, in the sense that women participate, participate much more before the court, huh? so the people who come to Lead. Uh, for instance, also people who come to represent the European Commission. There are much more women than uh, some 30 years ago. Um, so that that's that's really striking. Well, in the court, uh, we have only six women at this moment, and that's indeed the problem of the senior or the high ranks. And there I really still see see see. Uh, quite some space for improvement, not only within the court, but in general. But what also striking and striking issue is that among the referendaires, uh, there are, I, I, I think it must be something about a half, more or less, uh, women. Uh, while when I was here, I think we were three or four, and that was it. Uh, so also there you see that, I think just... Uh, Women who just proved that they are good, uh, that they manage, and that that changes also the perception, and they are just hired and do a wonderful job. Uh, Chiara, you already touched upon the issue of um, having pledges, having possibly uh, quotas. Um, now, when we enter into that discussion about gender equality and the role of women in law, you still sometimes get uh, what I would call an us-against-them approach. And that raises the question of should we be focusing on what I would call women-only solutions, like pledges uh, or quotas, or should we look also for more inclusive solutions that really benefit everyone in the workplace, uh, regardless of gender? Or should we be thinking about a combination of both types uh, of solutions? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, inclusiveness is a general and key uh, value that we need to have in the workplace, and uh, nobody contests that. Uh, my concern is that um, very often when you focus on uh, generality and inclusiveness of many categories, etc., the end result is you do nothing. You don't have mm -hmm. benchmarks to measure. 
uh, you dilute your effort. So the question is, what is your priority? If you want to make a step forward, I think it is necessary to focus for a period, perhaps, and then you can move to the next target. But this is why I am not against at all to women-only solutions. Uh, it does not need to exclude. It needs to be complementary with other things. It needs not to let leave aside our male colleagues, for example. But if you think of target, this is a women, woman-only solution. One thing that, that the ECB we have introduced a few years ago and is extremely successful is a leadership course for uh, female professionals. We also have leadership course for everybody else. But this one here is extremely successful for a number of reasons. First, because it is focused to target that group and empower that group, and because you create a network. So um, I definitely think that uh, there is nothing bad when you want to change the situation to target one objective and to focus on a specific thing. Think of a fire. You don't water the whole city uh, to turn it off. You do water where the fire is. You want to move on women issue, you have to target what where the problem is. Blanje, what's your position on this? Yeah, I, I also believe that you have to train. I, I don't think that these days there are many intentionally discriminatory people. Maybe there are some people who are more comfortable hiring their own or choosing their own and their own looks like them. But I don't think there's much deliberate no women here, you know, so that's not the problem. The problem is not even being aware that there aren't women. So, you know, take Sasha talking about the court of justice. It's insane that there are six judges on a court that size, you know, there's no reason for that at all. But because when it comes, there's no prompt even to the states for when they're putting forward their candidates, like there is, say, for the ECHR, one woman, one man, or even, you know, three candidates, at least one woman. Look if for I them. can interrupt, at a Tribunal. Yeah. They have this rule have right. there should be parity among right. the judges. So this right. is already, I think, a good step yeah. forward. Sorry. Why not? Yeah, no, no, I completely agree, Sasha. I mean, it's just like there's no reason not to. There are plenty of women now qualified. We can't say anymore, ah, oh, you have to lower the standards, as if anyone ever believed that. But the point is that there are plenty of women there. So, you know, these rules shift what people look for and see and they suddenly realize, oh, there is a big pool of women. Maybe we just kept hiring the ones we kind of thought were our, you know, our, our names, our allies, whatever, you know, whatever the reasons are that, that certain kinds of candidates are put forward. So I'm all in favor of targets and concentrating the mind in the, in the way that Chiara says. Yeah, I think um, that's something you hear more and more among women that the, the response, we, we are not finding the female candidates, is no longer acceptable. I think that's a, a, a kind of a common um, theme in a lot of the discussions about this. Um, Sasha, did you have any further ideas um, well, about women-only solutions? or? Uh, no, I, I don't really have solutions, of course. But... Um, I, in the first place, I'm 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 much more in favor to of an inclusive approach. But uh, of course, at a certain moment, when there is a clear stagnation uh, of hiring women, of getting women in higher higher ranks, uh, I am in favor in imposing preferential treatment or 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 quota, but 
and you can do many other things of course than than preferential treatment huh? you can you can uh, impose obligations that if there's a list of candidates that there should be a gender balance in that you can have diversity programs with in, within the organizations uh, you may even consider to make uh, the combination of work and life a bit more uh, comfortable for both men and women but you Overall, it's for the time being women who will benefit from that. You may even think about what type of criteria are we in fact using for hiring someone? Why couldn't you really take on board also experience of a person, skills of a person, uh, which this person could have get through uh, caring for her family or something like that? So it's also... Uh, what are the criteria for promoting and hiring uh, people? Of course, it depends very much of the of the um, functions. Um, but um, I am in so far a bit afraid for preferential treatment in 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 the past, at least in the Netherlands, uh, it has stigmatized women because you was appointed somewhere. And then it was, yes, you got this position only because you are a woman. We even had a sort of expression for it, excuse truce. Truce is a name and excuse is, it's an excuse. Huh? So this person has been hired only because she was a woman to have somebody. So you have to be very careful, I think, before you really impose hard preferential treatment measures. I think Raina wants to pick up on that point. Yeah, there were lots of things that Sasha said that sparked other thoughts in me. So maybe I'll just start with the last one about the stigma. That That's another one that always makes me so angry. I under, I completely agree with Sasha that, yeah, there there is this idea of stigma. But again, I mean, until the 1960s, there was exclusive affirmative action for all men. Every job every man got was because he was a man. No, but really... And the women weren't allowed. There was a marriage bar in Ireland. You know, my mother couldn't work because she was a married woman, you know. And so how dare anyone say that women are being appointed because they're women. They're being appointed because they were not allowed to be appointed for a very, very, very long time. And the entire caring and home rule was on them. So sorry, that's just on the stigma. Um, the two other things that occurred to me that that I also agree with, with Sasha and with your question, um, Isabel, about the the workplace, you know, unless we change the nature of the workplace more, there's no point in or just, you know, parachuting in women is not going to change things because if there's an expectation of working all hours, no flexibility for childcare, no recognition of the family dimension of life and so on, um, or the caring dimension of life, then that's not going to help women either. So the workplace has to change as well as, you know, the targets and these kinds of mechanisms. And that's a more inclusive, that means changing for men as well as for women, for everyone. And the third thing I wanted to say was we're focusing very much on on women and your question about uh, diversity and going beyond just us and them, you know, makes me focus on the fact that here in the US, the real sort of um, diversity priority over the last year since the Black Lives Matter movement has been racial diversity because that's an even, you know, not an even greater, but as great a shame as um, the the sort of lack of, of women in the workplace has been the underrepresentation of 
um, racial minorities, especially in the US. I don't think the conversation is that advanced in Europe on other kinds of diversity, mm. but it's very present here. It's very, very present at the moment, as is the gender issue. So we see, you know, these discussions of intersectionality and of diversity more broadly, inclusiveness of many different kinds um, coming in. And it's been a very healthy thing. It hasn't actually displaced, you know, oh, if we talk about race, we don't talk about gender. If we talk about gender, we don't talk about men. If we, talk, You know, it's not really like that. It, it strikes me that there's much more gradual awareness of the multifaceted nature of diversity and the, the justice dimensions, as well as the representational dimensions of having a diverse work, workplace. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I think it's, it's certainly important to see more uh, women in leadership positions, whether it's judicial office, director level, uh, tenure track pro uh, positions, uh, partnership at law firms. Uh, but it's not sufficient, and it's and there's a risk that that will happen, and then a lot of institutions will say, "Well, we've ticked the box." Um, but I think it has to go in parallel with a, a movement towards uh, a much more inclusive. Uh, uh, workplace that is that kind of results in uh, more diversity uh, for everyone, basically, mm. and um, and make sure that it's inclusive not only of women but um, um, many different uh, kind of groups. Now we've talked a lot about um, our perceptions on pledges, um, uh, quotas how we've seen uh, the, the role of women in the legal profession change, uh, who are our mentors, uh, but you are all also leading EU lawyers, so we also need to talk briefly uh, about EU law. Um, so basically, Sasha, I would like to ask you, do you think that the equality of directives have been up to the task of promoting gender equality? And what's the work that still needs to be done from the perspective of legal protection under EU law? Well, I think that the directives we have uh, has done a lot for women in employment, huh? in, in employment for salaried workers and self-employed. Uh, it has changed a lot in, in many countries. There is a big problem at this moment for quite some years with enforcement of the rules. Uh, you see now for decades that the level of litigation is very low. Now, I'm not saying that you have to resolve everything through litigation, but you could also think about other forms of enforcement, uh, what associations, organizations can do for women, because women themselves, and I understand it, don't like to bring cases it's it's i mean it's very insecure it's expensive it's stressing uh they probably are going to lose their job anyhow it's 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 difficult i think it's also very difficult to find a good test case i, I was involved in that ages ago when i was in the netherlands and it was very difficult to find a good case but you can also think about the role of inspectorates who should who should who should really much more monitor what is going on in these enterprises. And somebody last even mentioned that now we have authorities for everything, for competition and for the media. Why not an authority uh, for equality, huh? <laughs> sort of equality agency? 
But okay, that's work. But I think it's 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 in particular also outside the workplace where there are big problems, and of course these things are connected. Huh? The one influences the other, which is stereotyping women. It is uh, hates and harmful speech. It is violence against women. Um, and here, of course, we have the problem of limited competence of the of the of the union. But on on a, uh, on the other side, you can at least try to do something against what is happening in the media through the audiovisual media uh, services uh, directive. And now with the new uh, uh, digital services act, I I don't know. I haven't studied it in detail, but perhaps there are or should also be some things to make it possible to intervene on the internet uh, against hate speech or you know putting down stereotypical or even even sexual violence on, on, on the internet you see that as well so in this sphere a lot of things has to be done and and this is my final point i think in europe but i think the same holds true for 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 the states as well what we see are tendencies in certain member states to try to reverse the whole process of women's emancipation and to destroy what what was achieved. Uh, so certain member states, but also certain leaders or leaders of certain political parties or other movements in all the member states, even in the Netherlands, who speak belittlingly about women, who who present them as a sort of inferior creatures who should stay at home and look after the children and be there always ready for their husband. Uh, and this is something that scares me. It's 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 a part of a much broader movement uh, of yeah, call it populism, whatever you want. Uh, but but it, it it is scary that those ideas just pop up again. I think Kiara, you would like to react to Sasha's points. Yes, in fact, I wanted to complement Sasha's point because she mentioned the problem is the implementation and, and it's very, very true. And it's not only because it's difficult to find a case to bring to court. Now, what you need to bring to court is a blatant difference in treatment and that is very difficult to find. In the real um, life, in, in working life, in career progression, the big problem is that uh, career progression depends on many factors and they are subjective. And this margin of discretion that is left to your boss, to the recruiting panel, to uh, yourself as well, if you're not able to present yourself as you should be presenting yourself, is the problem of, um, of advancing in career. Uh, we were in discussion with a professor here in Frankfurt in economics who was making studies on um, uh, salary discrimination. The point is in public institutions you do not have salary discrimination because we have very fixed rules about where are you hired, where you start, how you advance, etc. The question is, are you um, always exactly treating exactly the same men and women? And it appears that there are many more women that um, perform tasks of a higher level with a lower salary. So what happens is that when you are capable, if you are a male, you end up being promoted. If you are a female, it happens a little bit less. Uh, we have a, a researcher in the ECB who also made a study on what happens when there is a promotion among economists. Her study is limited to economists not applying to lawyers, but 
I don't think the result would be so different. And what happens is that uh, women apply less because they are less confident. When they apply, they have a higher probability to be promoted. And when they are promoted, the first year after promotion, they have a higher score in the appraisal. So the problem is the first step, they apply less. And they apply less for a number of reasons. They are content and don't complain if they are given higher level tasks by the boss. They are actually grateful because they are learning. The problem is the male will complain, no, I need to be paid more for doing this. So these are a little bit the issues of different treatment that are implementation ones. And they are extremely, extremely difficult to be tackled. Gronia, you've written a lot about enforcement of uh, anti-discrimination laws and yeah. you've referred to the hierarchy of equalities within EU anti-discrimination uh, law. What, what's your take on this? I, I really share what both Sasha and Chiara have said that, um, I mean, it's, it's a broader issue about the role of law in in not pushing but helping social change. And it's a complex question and I don't think we could pick the equality directors particularly and say these have failed or succeeded. I think they've been really important and they've they're a part of something that has to happen. But other things need to law doesn't come alive by itself and especially not, you know, supranational law. Um, you need actors and Sasha's already referred to a number of them. You need civil society. People can't do it on their own. You need mobilization. Um, you need independent agencies, human rights commissions, equality commissions. You know, you, you need support for people and you need campaigns to take up the kinds of issues Chiara mentioned and to make sure they're litigated, pressed for that, that change comes about. So, you know, maybe we had more mobilization of women through maybe the seventies and so on in the EU. And I think as Sasha says, this illiberal moment that we're in, the, you know, the sudden um, rise of, I, I think of it as an unholy coalition of religious organizations and illiberal leaders, or not necessarily leaders, but, you know, political movements um, that are pushing back against, you know, the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women. You know, they, they've created a myth called gender ideology, and they're now all against that. Gender ideology is the idea of equality of people, you know. Um, it's some kind of bad ideology that has to be challenged. And again, women are uh, stereotyped and uh, locked into a particular gender role that they think appropriate. So the, the language of gender ideology in a way is turned on its head because I think this movement that we see in so many states is itself a kind of a weird um, sort of idea of a fixed gender role and what women should and shouldn't be doing and should and shouldn't be present. Um, and it's not just across Europe, very, very much in Turkey and Poland and Hungary and many states of Central and Eastern Europe, but it's present in all the states. You know, we had a president here for four years in the US who exemplified that, that approach to women, you know, um, really deeply misogynistic and so on. So it's a frightening time to see that misogyny being given a a voice uh, by so many political movements and to see churches joining with in public, um, in public, yeah, right, in right? public. Yeah. yeah. So we need to mobilize back, you know, get the allies. No, really. Um, I mean, it's really important to talk about it, to bring it out there, to name it and um, to build up civil society, to build up independent institutions in all of these states and independent voices in the media and so on to, to keep the pressure on, to uh, remind people that women are human too. <laughs> of their equal humanity. 
Yeah, I mean, this brings me to um, really kind of my final question, which, which is exactly on that point. And I, I would like to ask each of you, based on your personal experience, what recommendations you would have for everyone listening to this podcast on how through individual action they can promote gender equality and especially in their own work environment. I don't know, Sasha, would you like to start? I think that you need for enhancing the equality of men and women, you need a lot of patience. I'm very much in favor of a strategy of small steps in order to get changes in law, but also in society accepted. And for that, you need a lot of patience. Um, and I also think that we may, if we want to do something, may stimulate other women to be more self-confident even if you are in a position uh, and I've been in that position myself in the past as well that you have doubts can I do this can I do this job do it once you do it okay it can be hard so don't give up but if you compare it to men quite often they have no problem whatsoever to say of of course I can fix it, of course I can do it. Well, women just, you know, are much more hesitant with, in fact, no reason, because they can do that. Uh, And I I think it it has been mentioned, I believe, by Chiara already uh, some, 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 some 10, 15 minutes ago, but I think that is important. Not not to be, well, how, how shall we call it, shy, whatever. Of course, not to overact because that's disastrous. But but uh, more self confident, I think. Yeah. Chiara, would you like to add your recommendations to that? If I can summarize it with three points, the first is um, do not think that anything is too small to be mentioned, raised, and thematized. The Change of mentality requires that you don't let anything go that is not fine. That's the first. The second recommendation would be if you are a manager, invest time to keep this on the table all the time and also assign career relevant assignments to women. They need to be stretched to show what they can. And the third is what Jasasha just said is encourage fellow women to take up the challenge. They need to be encouraged. Sometimes we are not courageous enough. Gwaina, you have the final word on this. And we're all on on the same page on this one. I think, you know, there's individual confidence. Of course, that's a bootstrapping exercise. We're not confident. How do we get confident? Be confident. But it's super important. I see women who are really capable, you know, afraid to speak out in class, afraid to, you know, I recognize it. I remember it. But it's really important, you know, to to really to bootstrap, do it. Even if you don't think you're ready, as Sasha says, go for the job, apply for it, put yourself forward, submit your article, speak up in class, say your idea. Um, So individual actions. Secondly, collective action, you know, get together with other women. They'll be feeling many of them the same as you. Create these groups, you know, at, at NYU, we have a great group of doctoral students. They've set up a gender reading group they get together is that such a lovely you know opportunity to read to have fun it's like a book club but it's also a support network it's open to men as well as to women but it's a obviously a great support for for women in particular um 
uh, don't let anything go, as as um, Chiara said, but also, you know, this is this is a difficult thing. Mainstream gender awareness within yourself and in others, you know, become aware of all the times and the ways in which, you know, you can do something, you can say something, don't shy away from it, don't be afraid of it. You know, it's it's worth articulating. It's a it's a basic justice issue. It's not something to be afraid of or worried about. It's something to say. And I think the, to go back to the point uh, Sasha made about the, the dangerous times we're living in, you know, we need to name things, point them out, to raise the conversation, to write about these things, to draw attention. Um, that's really important, not to just let them happen and suddenly it's upon us, you know. Um, so I think, you know, address these things. For I'm an academic, so I'm thinking about writing. You write about it, publish blogs, articles, you know, make your research agenda, you know, around these things. These are really important um, and keep the conversation going. Sasha, Chiara, Gwernia, many thanks for this fascinating conversation. It has been an absolute pleasure and I hope that we can continue this debate. The initiative to host this podcast to mark International Women's Day has greatly benefited from the support of Andrum Shabir, Dolores Ochilia, Dania Sarmiento, as well as various members of the editorial board of EU Law Live. If you wish to listen or read more about the latest EU law developments taking place now, you can subscribe to EU Law Live. And more information is available on our website, eulawlive.com. Thank you and until next time.